Hello everyone, this is your host, Mr. Jeffersonian, and this is the pilot episode for the Jeffersonian Tradition podcast, where we will primarily explore politics from a decentralist point of view. In addition, we will sometimes take a look at personal finance issues and explore historical events. Thank you for joining me on this adventure, and before we get started, I just have a couple of things to ask of the audience. If you find value in this podcast, please help out by donating through the attached link in the podcast notes. Every little bit helps, and thank you in advance to anyone who decides to do so. Now, with all that being said, let's get into our very first topic, the compact theory. All right, so obviously the first question is, what is the compact theory? The compact theory asserts that the states who ratified the Constitution, and prior to the Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, did so as separate sovereigns and are therefore the rightful parties to the Constitution. This matters because John Marshall, uh, John Jay, Joseph Story, these were Supreme Court chief justices who would later try to say that the Union predated the Constitution or the states, and that because of that fact, yes, we ratified it through the states, but only because there was no other practical way to do it. That's that's just not true. Uh, the, the citizens of each state were called into convention. Uh, they ratified it through delegates elected to the conventions, and there was very rigorous debate about it. So the states definitely were a, a critical role or played a critical role in determining whether or not the Constitution would be ratified. Now, what is sovereignty? Sovereignty is defined as a body having supreme or ultimate authority. Depending on the political system, sovereignty can lie with a monarch, a dictator, within a representative body, or in the case of the original American Union, with the individual state governments. Essentially, this means that the 13 states were independent, with the people in each state being citizens of the respective state from which they held. So, in other words, there was not, at that point, it, there was not really a conception of any such thing as, as one American people, uh, typically, and, and especially if you read more about the War for Southern Independence, you see that people considered themselves citizens of their states. Uh, so Robert E. Lee, for example, he considered himself a citizen of the state of Virginia, not a citizen of the United States. And so that, again, that matters. Uh, home and hearth, that, that was a very important thing for the founding generation all the way up through the War for Southern Independence. Now, because the states were the sovereign parties to this document, they were to retain the right to alter or withdraw from it whenever it became destructive of the ends for which it was created. So you can look at this. Basically, the states, when they ratified the Constitution, they essentially were entering into a contract. Now, a lot of nationalists will say, well, yes, they entered into this contract, and the contract says that it was perpetual, uh, especially under the Articles of Confederation. It, it does explicitly say that this is to be a perpetual union. Now, people get hung up on that, but that doesn't, that doesn't really mean anything. When it says perpetual, it really only means it did not have a built-in expiration date. So, for example, you wouldn't have to re-ratify the Constitution or the Articles of Confederation, let's say, every five to ten years. But, because the states were sovereign, at any point they could decide, you know what, this is just not really working out for us. We basically want to take our toys and go home, and we'll, we'll just kind of govern ourselves and take it from there. So, that, that matters. 
Now, who advocated the compact theory? The main faction, at least at the founding period, was the Anti-Federalists or the Jeffersonians, and they were the largest faction to hold the compact theory as the true and correct interpretation of the Constitution for the United States. And this faction included such, such distinguished members as Patrick Henry, Thomas Jefferson, George Mason, John Randolph of Roanoke, Spencer Rowan, John Taylor of Caroline, Nathaniel Macon, and many others, many, many others. And all the way down through the years, uh, the Jeffersonian view or, or the compact theory has extremely deep-seated historical precedents. So one, once you get down through the years and into the War for Southern Independence period, you have notable compact theorists such as John C. Calhoun, Abel P. Upshur, obviously Jefferson Davis, uh, Robert E. Lee was a big-time states' right advocate. And so we, we have a pretty much continuous unbroken line for roughly the first 80 years of American history of, of people who believe this. Who opposed the compact theory? The main faction were the Federalists, uh, and they were spearheaded by the likes of Alexander Hamilton. The Federalists wanted an incredibly strong central government, at so, in some cases to the point that they wanted to abolish the states altogether and basically create a unitary state. And unitary, uh, just, just so we can kind of have a common understanding here, unitary basically means you have one government, one, one sovereign, one government that can control policy for the entire country. So Brian McClanahan talks about uh, France a lot in, in describing this example. So France, prior to the revolution, as a monarchy, the, the king had the ultimate authority over the entire region that was considered France. Um, and then after the revolution, especially after the revolution, you had a lot of French, na- or, excuse me, French national, nationalism whereby the central government of France was able to legislate for the entire country, regardless of what the different provinces thought. And so that's sort of what the Federalists wanted. Actually, in in Hamilton's case, that's exactly what he wanted. He wanted one supreme governing authority, and he thought, basically, if you had one big government, you could control factions because it would just be basically too big and there would be so many different competing factions that that nobody would be able to to really ever take control of it fast forward 80 years we we see that that wasn't really the case the federalists were also highly sectional being predominantly based in the new england states although some southerners such as james madison and george washington were sympathetic to the federalist viewpoint now for washington i kind of think it was more out of necessity, uh, just because immediately after the revolution, things were still pretty volatile, and the 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 union was not really on on a solid foundation at that point. So I, I think he favored centralization of power, just more so to keep the country from falling into what he thought would be anarchy. So uh, now the sectional differences. And these matter, uh, especially again as as we fast forward through through American history. The, these ultimately end up manifesting in a myriad of ways. But the sectional differences from the very founding of the U.S. Uh, were deeply seated, and there were a lot of differences between the North and the South, and later on the the North and the West, and the the South and the West. The South and the West should have actually been natural allies, but um, they they were kind of 
I, I guess, bribed by the North with federally funded internal improvements and other things. But the North, primarily New England, was highly industrialist and made their fortunes through shipping and manufacturing. So you would have the industrialist or the capitalist class in the North who would have factories, uh, textile mills, steel mills, iron, iron factories, all different kinds of, of different factories. And they, that's how, or that's predominantly what their economy was based on. In the South, uh, it was highly agricultural and, and remained so all the way up through the war for Southern independence. And the South made most of its money through exports. Uh, primarily, they would export, well, in the antebellum period, they would export cotton. Uh, but in the early American period, they would export things like tobacco, uh, wheat, other other different types of crops. Cotton really didn't come onto the scene as a major player until later in the 1800s. Now, as we fast forward, again, this kind of manifests itself because the North starts to seek protectionist tariffs to help foster and protect their industrialists. And so the South didn't like that because as an exporting country and, and by extension an importing country or section, the South said, you know what, this is not, this is not really a good thing. We're paying for a lot of subsidies to the North and we're not really getting any of the benefit from it. So that that started very early on. Uh, again, from the founding period, there there were big time sectional differences. Now, politically, the South was also generally more in line with the Jeffersonian vision of America, which was a union intended for commerce and defense, but all other matters were to be left to the states. The New England section was more in favor of a consolidated or nationalist vision of America, henceforth referred to as the Hamiltonians or the Federalist. And again, that's that's what we were talking about earlier. Uh, Hamilton wanted a highly centralized government that could basically control the the rest of the union, and uh, basically to the point that he was in favor of just getting rid of the states altogether. Now, what is some evidence in support of the compact theory? So we've been talking about it for a few minutes now. What what's some evidence that actually points to this being the correct interpretation? There's a ton of evidence. Now, for time's sake, I'm only going to focus on a couple of them, uh, but there's a ton of evidence out there. At some point, we'll, we'll talk about books that go over it, and we'll talk about different people who espoused it and how they defended it. But the two things that I'm going to focus on right now are Virginia and New York's ratification statement. So th this is what they said. This was their contingency for ratifying the Constitution. First one's from Virginia. It says, We, the delegates of the people of Virginia duly elected in pursuance of a recommendation from the General Assembly, and now met in convention, having fully and freely investigated and discussed the proceedings of the Federal Convention, and being prepared as well as the most mature deliberation hath enabled us, to decide thereon, do in the name and on behalf of the people of Virginia, declare and make known that the powers granted under the Constitution, being derived from the people of the United States, may be resumed by them whensoever the same shall be perverted to their injury or oppression, and that every power not granted thereby remains with them and at their will. The next one is New York's. We, the delegates of the people of the state of New York, duly elected and met in convention, having maturely considered the Constitution of the United States of America, and having also seriously and deliberately considered the present situation of the United States, do declare and make known 
that all power is originally vested in and consequently consequently derived from the people and that government is instituted by them for their common interest, protection, and security, that the enjoyment of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are essential rights which every government ought to respect and preserve, that the powers of government may be reassumed by the people whensoever it shall become necessary to their happiness, that every power, jurisdiction, and right, which is not by the said Constitution clearly delegated to the Congress of the United States or the departments of the government thereof, remains to the people of the several states or to their respective state governments to whom they may have granted the same, and that those clauses in the said Constitution which declare that Congress shall not have or exercise certain powers do not imply that Congress is entitled to any powers not given by the said Constitutions, but such clauses are to be construed either as exceptions to certain specified powers or as inserted merely for greater caution. And so what's the significance of this? Okay, so Virginia, they're, they're saying, okay, we, we ratify this, but we are asserting the right that at any point we, we can withdraw. If, if we feel that this union becomes destructive of its ends, then we can withdraw and resume our right to self-government. New York saying the exact same thing. That power ultimately is vested in the people and the state governments or the states. Um, so we need to make a distinction there. So New York's, they, they said that the, the power is vested in the people or in the states. Um, now, nobody back then was really in favor of anarchy. Actually, m- many of, of that generation thought anarchy was, was like the ultimate sin against humanity. And so even though it says the people... They did realize that it was not preferable to have just just an ungovernable mob. Uh, so they what they really mean by that is the powers is vested in the people via their state governments. And so that's important to remember uh, just moving forward, but that that's the significance of these two statements. Two of the largest states in the Union at that time are saying, we recognize this, we will ratify this, but we retain the right to withdraw from it. And so later on, uh, especially when we get to the war for Southern independence, it really kind of paints it in a different light when you see that the North decided to invade the South, especially Virginia, because Virginia explicitly stated, we reserve the right as a sovereign state, we reserve the right to withdraw from this if we ever perceive it to be an oppression or tyrannical. So how is this different from the mainstream concept of the United States? Well, with the conclusion of the War for Southern Independence, the de facto interpretation of the U.S. Constitution became the Hamiltonian interpretation, which again proposes a supreme central government that has implied powers and can dictate policy to the states. This interpretation also strongly pushes the idea of an amorphous or one American people glob, which we talked about earlier up until the conclusion of that war, that was not really a thing. People did not think of themselves as a citizen of the United States at large. They considered themselves to be a citizen of the state in which they lived. So Thomas Jefferson, he considered himself a citizen of the state of Virginia. Uh, George Washington, Robert E. Lee, so on and so forth. They considered themselves to be citizens of their respective states. This interpretation has directly led to the rise of the legal doctrine of incorporation, which asserts that anything that applies to the general government, mostly the Bill of Rights, by default also applies to the state governments, 
Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit later on in the episode, but I do just want to touch on this. So recently, there was a federal court decision to overturn a California state law that that banned certain types of, uh, quote-unquote, assault weapons. That's not a good thing. I I know a lot of pro-gun people, and I know a lot of libertarians who think that it was a good thing, and they they actively cheered it uh, because, hey, it's a win for liberty, but... It, it, you're you're already losing the argument but at, at the point that you say it's a good thing because the supreme government or excuse me the central government smacked down a state law you've already lost the argument because what happens five years from now if that court overturns the decision because new judges are appointed who don't agree with a broad interpretation of the second amendment so that that's not a good thing the state of california should be able to legislate for its citizens now, here in Colorado, we have entered a, a phase where the state legislature is starting to do a lot of stuff that, that they're not putting before the people, and I, and I don't agree with that. I, I don't think a state should act uh, unilaterally to that effect, and I definitely think that there should be a strict interpretation of the state constitutions, the individual state constitutions, and we can discuss it from there. So as long as California is consulting the citizens of California through elections or, or through ballots, California should be able to legislate accordingly, uh, even, you know, to the detriment of a few of, of a minority. So I, I know a lot of people in California are kind of ultra liberal, ultra progressive. Many of them may not want guns. So let's say if it's a 70, 30 margin for people who support uh, gun control versus people who don't, that's a California issue. Uh, that That's not a Colorado issue. That's not an Alabama issue. That's not a New York issue. That's a California issue. And the general government should not be able to use incorporation to say, nope, this is the interpretation that we have of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and therefore we're smacking down your law. That That's not representative. If the people of California don't want it, how how is that a good thing? Or if the majority of people in California don't want it, how is that a good thing? Political self-determination is one of the most sacred rights that people should have the authority to exercise. And, and in my opinion, it's a negative right, which should mean that it does not require any action from an outside actor to enable them to actually exercise it. They, they can just do it on their own by means of merely existing. Now, the, the Hamiltonian viewpoint is flawed in other ways, too. Uh, two of the most egregious, in my opinion, are, again, that the Supreme Court has become the end-all, be-all for what is considered constitutional with disastrous results. So aside from gun control, again, think the Affordable Care Act. Disaster. Absolute disaster. And it leaves the people of the states with no real recourse whenever the general government becomes oppressive because it considers or, or the Hamiltonian interpretation considers secession and nullification illegal. I will dedicate an episode to each of these topics in future episodes, but just suffice it to say that because of the nationalist or Hamiltonian interpretation, secession is considered anathema and nullification is, is just considered a totally debunked um, legal concept. So where is the recourse? Now, another flaw is that the United States is in no way even close to matching the classical definition of the word nation. This definition of nation is as follows. A large body of people united by common descent, history, culture, or language inhabiting a particular country or territory. 
Okay, most of the U.S. speaks English, but that's one of the only areas where we can realistically say that the U.S. matches this definition. A great book called Albion Seed breaks down the cultural differences even amongst the first generations of English settlers. And in more modern times, we can see the differences with Hispanic subcultures, African-American subcultures, Asian subcultures, and so on and so forth. In many instances, even the individual states would not necessarily be homogenous enough to be considered nations. And so what I mean by that is, again, from the founding period all the way up through today, people in New England are different from people in the South. People in the South are different from people on the West Coast. People in North Dakota are different from people in other parts of the country. Take your choice. And so we're not homogenous. Uh, even even the white population, it, it's not homogenous. And then once you have states who have higher minority populations, definitely not homogenous. So if you have a state, let's say, just for example, if you have a state that's 60% white, uh, let's say 20% Hispanic, 10% black, and let's say the that other makes up the remaining 10%, then you're going to have a lot of cultural preferences there. You're, you're going to have a lot of different cultural norms. You're going to have a lot of different political preferences as a result of that. And so now multiply that across all 50 states, and there is no way, there is no way that a cabal of roughly 500 people in D.C. can be representative of all of those different interests. Whereas if you decentralize to the states and preferably even down to the counties, you can have real representation and you can make a difference because your your voice matters at the local level your voice matters and dr brian mcclanahan again he he hammers that thought home over and over again he he proposes think local act local that's that's one of his big slogans and i fully agree if you vote at the local level and even up to the state level you actually can make a difference now i personally think that the state should give the counties a little bit more authority and organize the counties a little bit more maybe even to the point that every state employs its own version of the electoral college for state level elections. So governor, for example, I think gubernatorial candidates should have to win a majority of counties and not just focus on, on the major cities. So I was born and raised in Louisiana. And just as an example, I'm going to use them. It's gotten to a point where if a candidate wins New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Shreveport, they can pretty much carry the state regardless of how the rest of the state votes. And that, in my opinion, that's not a good thing because New Orleans can hold the rest of the state hostage or Baton Rouge can hold the rest of the state hostage and pass certain taxes that favor those regions at the expense of everyone else. And, and I don't, I think there needs to be some sort of protection there, which is why I say that the counties, in my opinion, should be organized a little bit more and given a little bit more authority. So all of that to say this, um, again, going from the top down, the higher up in that pyramid you get, the less representative, just by default, uh, the less representative it becomes. And so that leads me to my next point, which is why I favor the compact theory and the Jeffersonian tradition. Now, I personally used to be a libertarian, uh, and I was closely in line with the anarcho-capitalist variety of libertarianism, and so for those of you who do not know what that means, I was of the opinion that the ultimate goal of 
any political philosophy should be the abolition of the state. Uh, and when I say the state, I mean like any form of government. So state level, county level, federal level, uh, so on and so forth. And that people could organize themselves into self-governing uh, political units. And, you know, ultimately, that that's still a great goal. Um, I, I, I'm not completely or I have not completely abandoned that. But I just think it's a very unrealistic goal. And so now I'm much more of an advocate for the Jeffersonian tradition or for states' rights, because if we can at least decentralize a little bit, then we can try to move the Overton window from there and, and try to decentralize even more. But but for now, um, I have firmly moved into the Jeffersonian school. Now, I've mentioned him a couple of times, but Dr. Brian McClanahan became a major influence on my outlook by talking about how different states and different regions can have vastly different cultures. And again, we've already talked about this. So as an example, people in Texas may be extremely pro-gun, while people in California may be extremely anti-gun. In the past, I would have thought it was okay for these differences to be ignored in pursuit of pro-liberty policies. So even if California wanted to ban guns, well, that's too bad because that's anti-liberty and we're going to use the court system to force a pro-gun culture upon you. Now, over time, I accepted the fact that legislation of any sort should not be forced on a body politic if the local participants don't want it. And that even means that trying to force liberty from the top down is wrong. Political self-determination, again, is a sacred right that ought to be respected and denying a local culture's wishes one way or another is nothing short of oppression and tyranny. Again, it's kind of the old axiom, right? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And so that's where probably over the past roughly year or so, I've had a major shift in my political thought. I now think that regardless of how much I may disagree with a certain state's policies, I have no right through the general government, uh, and, and in my opinion, you have no right through the general government to enforce your will on somebody else. So even if they have bad ideas, they have every right to try it. Uh, give them the chance to fail or, or succeed. If they surprise me and they succeed, hey, more power to them. But give them the chance to make their own mistakes. And the Jeffersonian tradition provides a path for differences of political preferences to be embraced and even encouraged. So now we have so much tension in America because the Hamiltonian vision is totally complete, in, in my opinion. Now, throughout the COVID-19 fiasco, uh, some states did buck the trend. Florida is, is an example, South Dakota. And that, that's a good thing. That, that was a small revival of, of the concept of federalism. And so that's a good thing because they, they took their own path. However, for the most part, the Hamiltonian vision has won out. And that is why we have so much tension in the United States, because we have a system now where people are so concerned about controlling the center that they don't really think about the benefits of saying, hey, you know what, maybe the center should be small enough that nobody cares, and let's just let the states have their own policies. So... And that way, the Jeffersonian tradition provides an outlet for that. You, you can have differences of opinion and still be cordial to each other versus now, it, you know, if you have a conservative, quote unquote, and a, a progressive, 
they can hardly stand in many cases to be in the same room with each other. There, there's no tolerance anymore of dissenting opinions or, or dissenting thoughts. And, and that's scary. If we get to a point where that totally becomes the norm, that is a scary outcome because it leads to violence. Almost inevitably that will lead to violence. So is it not better to decentralize and go in peace than to coerce all these different subcultures and cultures to stay together and fight? I I think the answer has to be an unequivocal yes, it's better to separate in peace. And this tradition also provides the only practical example of competition in government. If the nationalist or Hamiltonian position is embraced, again, the citizens are left with no recourse short of violence or resentment. This is going to be the stopping point for our first episode. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. And also, please subscribe and share this podcast to help get the message out. And I do just want to reiterate, please consider donating to the podcast to help keep it going. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you all next time.